When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. This is Metal Mike, and I got a question for you. Have you ever noticed that on the podcast interview scene, you hear a lot of the same people being interviewed, and sometimes it's kind of cookie-cutter-ish? Well, what you are about to hear does not fit into that category at all. I talked to the killer vocalists from Cats and Boots, Mary Hoax, and Heavy Bones, Mr. Joel Ellis. This is actually part one of a three-part interview series. In this interview one, Joel completely hijacks the interview and disrupts the normal flow of the 80s glam metal cast. But you know what? It's awesome. We talk a lot of heavy bones in this one. And strangely enough, Joel sings some scorpions and some beetles to me. You gotta check it out. Well, Joel, welcome to the 80s glam metal cast. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, Mike. How you doing, bro? Man, I'm doing awesome. Thanks for asking. So, hey, right. I got to ask you, man, what have you been up to? You been working on any new music? Will we see some new music from you in the future? <laughs> um, well, yeah, where do you want to start? You want to start, like, in the last year, the last five years, the last ten years? <laughs> tell, man, tell me whatever you want to tell me. I don't care. Yeah, no, I've been making music all along, you know. I've got masters for... Um, some records that I've done, shit, man, all the way back uh, into Hollywood. So I um, and up until now. But uh, to answer your question, yes, yes, the timing is right. Timing hasn't been right. I've been really consumed with a lot of other things, but mm-hmm. um, my spirit is back into the music business. It wasn't for a while, but it is again. And uh, I plan on uh, doing. So. I was hoping to have some 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 new releases this year. You know, yeah, but everybody's singing the COVID blues, you know. Yeah, this year is a little screwed up for sure. What kind of what's the um, direction of the material you've been working on? You know, it's a good question because, uh, you know, it's like David Bowie says: the difference between a musician and an artist. You know, and sometimes artists are hard to pin down, even mm-hmm. you know, even in even in our own minds. You know, um, so my music is 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 very diverse. Um, you know, right after Heavy Bones, I was working with uh, Bobby Womack and uh, Ronnie Wood, and I was I was sitting in on the Rolling Stones uh, Voodoo Lounge sessions, and so I had some uh, some great influences, and um, I made a record that was just uh, very special, and um, I was uh, planning on having it be my first solo record, mm-hmm. so we called it Ellis Island because I didn't really have like one band. I invited a lot of different people. I had, uh, well, I had Jam from Cats and Boots come in on guitar, but I told him, I said, you know, you, you got to play like just deep, dark blues, mm-hmm. psychedelic, you know, edgy stuff. Oh, he's okay. I can do it. Then I had uh, Phil Chen on bass. He played with Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart, and I had Spider Middleman who played sax with Tom Waits, and uh, Larry Aberman who played on the Vaughn Brothers record was on drums, and Bobby Womack came in and dropped in, and Ronnie Wood dropped in, and uh, I had uh, another guitarist who's kind of brilliant, unsung, great, great artist down in San Diego. His name is Jimmy Zolo, and Jimmy is just a scary guitar player, and um, so uh, he's just really great, talented guy. So Jimmy and I are kind of kindred souls. So we made this record in Jimi Hendrix's old studio which uh, back in the 60s, it's right on the corner of uh, Highland and Sunset. But in the bottom of an old hotel, uh, Jimmy was staying, and he was waiting for Electric Ladyland to get finished in the 60s. And so he talked the owner of the place into letting him have the basement. So he went in there, and he tricked it out for himself to record in. And then he moved to New York, and uh, and a bunch of guys like Frank Zappa, who, you know, rest in soul, he's, he was very. I was very close to the Zappas, and I loved Frank. In fact, Frank was the one that got us our Cats and Boots deal on EMI. Nice. A little bit of trivia there. But, you know, Frank came in, he made Hot Rats there, and uh, if you ever watch the Doors movie where Morrison sits in that room 
with a bottle of Jack and a microphone and reads poetry. It was in that yeah. room. Yep. Uh, oh, okay. Janice Joplin worked there. In fact, we we moved. We pulled her old upright piano out, and the, the, the tuning plate was warped. And so I brought in a guy named Michael Lord who had absolute perfect pitch. Still does. Still recording in Hollywood. But it was uh, it was it was quite a uh, an endeavor for us all. But we came out with a record. We went in for a week. None of us went home. We were <laughs> we recorded our best stuff at four in the morning, four a.m. My old lady snoring. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> so um, yeah, and uh, uh, you know we came out with uh, six or seven songs that I still have on Two Inch Master, and then Anm Records, Shelly Yakis. Uh, you know, he, he was uh, managing A&M Studios. He, he said, come on over, we'll give you a deal, we'll give you studio time. So I went over there and I mixed, started working on that record, and it's very esoteric. I mean, it's uh, it's got R&B influences from Bobby. It's got some very, very scary dark blues uh, stuff in there, very dynamic, very epic stuff, and uh, just great songs. It's unlike anything. It's the record that I always wanted to do in my heart, and... Uh, after regurgitating all the shit with Heavy Bones, which is a great record. I know a lot of people like mm -hmm. it. It is a tremendous record, but it's just, it's a far cry from what I wanted to do. I never had the experience of being forced to record to a click track, and I just feel like my soul got stripped in addition to dealing with the bullshit from Darian, mm -hmm. you know, all Dave Kaplan. Ripped off the band bad, fucked up the record, put some stupid-ass fucking artwork on the record when we weren't looking. So, but anyways, it is a great record. It just could have been a whole lot better. But, um, and the band could have gone on if there wasn't so much immature shit happening and greed. But, um, hey, it is what it is, you know. But this is the record that was my answer to it. So I'm going to be releasing this. Nice. It's called Ellis Island. And then I've got uh, a record I did years later that's really kind of good. You can find a promo reel of it on YouTube. Just type in, this is Ellis and Angel. Okay. And it's a record, you know, my, my boy Joey, he was uh, he's kind of a prodigy, and you'll hear it. But if you go to This Is Ellis and Angel, and then you pull stuff up, we, we were working with some cats from Bonnie Raitt's band, Off Luck of the Draw, you know, uh, Bruce Hornsby's band, you know, J.T. Thomas, and just a lot of great people. Um, Don Peake, who was one of Eric Clapton's top three influences. Don Peake was a guitarist for uh, Motown the wall of sound with Phil Spector. And then he played with Ray Charles for 17 years. And he came in and he was carrying uh, Chris Hillman's uh, guitar that he wrote, turn, turn, turn from the birds. He came walking in with this beautiful black Gibson semi hollow. And he's a guy that invented the chip chip and Steve Cropper picked it up from him, but he came in and he was going to play in the record. And he spent, uh, he spent about 30 minutes in the back room with Joey. And he comes out, he goes, you know, I'm going to actually play behind him. He's just really good. So, Joey was 15, and he played lead guitar on the entire on the entire record. And go oh. listen to it yourself. Punch up Ellis and Angel, Katie, or any of those songs. So that's going to get released. Sony Nashville actually offered to sign us uh, after KJ97 threw a single of it up on the radio. But then uh, we were about to go to Nashville, and Joey said, you know, Dad, I don't want to do this kind of music anymore. <laughs> 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 oh yeah okay yeah you're a little desensitized you fucker you know but <laughs> no, i love them and then there's um there's a whole lot of other stuff i mean uh jim and i have been you know he, he contacted me last december and he said hey man you know he goes uh we should make another record because i told him I, I said hey man it's gonna be christmas man why don't we bury the hatchet and pull your head out of your ass and let's talk. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. So he shot me back and he's like, yeah, Hey, it's not a problem. I'm in Tokyo and, uh, I got gigs until spring, but you know, we can write and start planning something. So he said, but let's do it with all original members. And I said, yeah, I, sounds good to me, man. Is, is Butch around? He's like, yeah, Butch is here, but you know, we got to have something solid, you know, for him to leave his job. Right. And then uh, I said, well, yeah, let me rattle Randy's cage. And so I got a hold of Randy, and I said, Randy, I said, do you have any brain cells left? He's like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, fuck, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you able to play your drums? He goes, man, that's all I do. <laughs> that's all I do, Joel. That's all I do. I play drums. He goes, I play my heavy set during the day. I come home and play my electronic kit at night. 
I said, well, get on a plane. Come on up here, man. You know, come come stay at the house, and we'll start recording. Set my shit up. You know, I mean, all that was in the works, and then the COVID came down on us all. So, um, so I'm thinking that I'm going to have a couple of studio releases. I also have um, a whole lot of uh, heavy bones material that didn't make the record that okay. should have made the record because it's fucking amazing songs, but. I don't know, that whole record got steered out of my control, so I apologize for my, my heavy rock fans, but, um, you know, I mean, we were trying to do some diversity in there, kind of legs up and make it a little melodic, you know, but I, I just didn't intend it to be so glossy mm-hmm. and fancy, you know, that's a Richie Zito production, so, you know, um, you know, I love Richie, but it just wasn't the right, wasn't the right producer for that record. Um, you know, we had... Um, What's his name? The guy that did uh, Soundgarden. And uh, he came down from Seattle. And uh, he sat in the corner behind the PA speaker and listened to us play. And he smoked cigarettes. And he came out. And he was just like, Fuck, you guys are great. You know, he goes, I want to produce your record. And I was down with it. I mm-hmm. said, hell yeah, man. You worked with Mother Love Bone, one of my favorite bands of all time. Soundgarden, you know, Pearl Jam, the whole thing. And I was like, okay. But then, uh, you know, I made a stupid mistake by letting the band have like an equal rights thing i i was like i was all like into the romance of 70s artists because that's what i am i'm a 70s artist you know i mean i just happened to pop up in the 80s but i mean yeah i mean i was sculpted out of the 70s and so it's like you know you know just being unique i mean the diversity of the 70s art was amazing and so so um yeah, so, I mean, the melodic stuff was meant to be kind of more in line with, like, kind of a Zeppelin release, you know, mm-hmm. where they've got, you know, acoustic mixed with heavy and all that. But but then, you know, it just got, the, the acoustic stuff just got, it got done too pretty. And I think the click track really robbed the band of its heart and soul. Because if you sat in rehearsals with us, with Frankie pounding out that groove, I mean, I had to put glass walls up in front of the drums because man i would leave there feeling like i had a hole in the back of my head he's so powerful frankie is such a powerful drummer and he's so spot on i love the guy always did we've always been friends but um that's why i brought him into the band but yeah but there were problems you know i don't i'm not sure if if gary could actually play without a click track and so i think that was part of it plus there's like 50 guitar tracks on every song which is just kind of like a wall of mush, <laughs> you know, just, just give me a fucking Les Paul, plug it into an old Fender twin, crank it up. And, uh, you know, we can do overdubs, but why do you have to play 20 tracks of the same guitar rhythm? It doesn't right. make sense. Yeah. But yeah, so those kind of things kind of got out of hand, but uh, all in all, it was a good record. There was some good points. I mean, we were at A&M Studios mixing. We had Jimbo Barton, who produced all the Queensryche, uh, Operation Minecraft stuff. He came in just to mix it. So you have Richie Zito doing, like, the heart cheap trick, you know, that yeah. kind of, uh, you know, layering and recording. Then you got Jimbo Barton with that heavy, glossy, you know, Minecraft stuff. And uh, so we were in A&M, and Aerosmith was, was just down the hall from us. And um, so we were in there for, I don't know how long, maybe three months. I don't remember. But the whole time, you know, Aerosmith was in there making Get a Grip, and I was hanging out a lot with Steven and the guys. And um, super, super, if anybody, big Aerosmith fans out there, they are like the nicest, coolest guys. I mean, bar none. I, on my birthday, they were at the door in the lobby waiting for me when I came in. They all stood up and were clapping, singing happy birthday. And Steven, because they like, hey, man, happy birthday, you know? <laughs> Threw his arms around me. I mean, they're just th- those kind of guys. And so, anyways, um, we were mixing where eagles fly. Mm-hmm. And he just had to, he kept coming in there and just saying, man, I got to hear that song. And he would sit down and close his eyes on a stool and he'd kind of rock back and forth. Close his eyes for the whole seven minutes of the song. And, and, <laughs> and then he would point to his arm and there'd be goosebumps. And he's like, man, it's a fucking incredible song. You know, so there's little parts in there like that that, you know, make me, you know, believe that regardless of what I think, regardless of what I had envisioned, you know, regardless of what I think it could have been, um, coming from a third party point of view, I mean, even Tommy Lee liked it. He came in while we were doing, I think, one of the most mellow songs on the record, Beating Heart. 
And he was listening to it. He was just like, fuck, this is great, you know. <laughs> Can't describe it, but it's great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. The crazy thing was, like, I got to admit, man, because I, I was huge into cats and boots, and somehow heavy bones just missed my radar. So this week... I went back before we were going to talk, and I, and I listened to it, and man, I, I'm loving it. And right now, I got to tell you, I'm just, you know, this is my first week kind of listening to it, but turn it on, I don't know, man. I like those kind of songs. Like, I like catchy tunes like that. I know you're saying maybe that wasn't the direction that you were hoping for, but that's a great song. I, I love that song. It's, it's stuck in my head all, all week it's been stuck in. Yeah, it's, it's good. I mean, you know, I mean, I was, I was trying to, I mean, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, that song... Actually, you know, first of all, that record missed a lot of people's radar because it wasn't managed correctly. We had Satan's son for a manager, <laughs> and Dave, Dave, Dave Kaplan. I mean, holy Christ, you couldn't have, you couldn't possibly fall into a, a, a pit of snakes worse than that guy. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, ooh, that that record just wasn't promoted well. I mean, we we went to Hawaii. We did shows in Honolulu for we had four AMTM was was cranking at the number one spot on pirate radio and uh, it it became a single on its own. It was just meant to be released as a quote unquote promotional thing. So I mean, if we had a great great manager, he would have known how to release songs and, and make them singles. But it was the fans of LA that grabbed onto that song. They sunk their teeth into it, and the song stayed at number one on pirate radio for a long time. We went to Hawaii. You know, we were there, we did some shows, Pearl Jam at the, you know, Wahoo State football field and, you know, drinking tequila with them, come home, surfing, you know, almost got bit by a friggin' tiger shark, but <laughs> I don't know, I guess they didn't smell good, Jim, but luckily for me. But no, Hawaii was awesome, it was amazing. You know, went up to Turtle Bay with the guys in Pearl Jam and they went out with their boards and I was like, I, I, I know, it looks like a skyscraper falling on me. I'm not getting in there. I'll die. I will die. You know, so didn't go. But we came back and then we did, we were going to do a show at the Troubadour and I can't really remember, but I think it sold out three nights in a row. So we played there and then we left and we were supposed to go do a Southwest tour and our manager was nowhere to be found. I mean, Mr. 20% of everything you own uh, was gone. And I don't know, I, someone told me he was off surfing in Tobago on our money somewhere, but we landed somewhere in the Southwest and we got off the plane and there was nothing there, no one there, no tour bus, nothing, standing around holding our dicks in our hands, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> literally, you know, but uh, it was a long flight. No, but seriously, we had to go. The band had to, like, we had to, like, get our manager's assistant to line up rental cars for us. And where was the gear? It was a mess. So, you know, needless to say, I, I couldn't sit in the rehearsal room with Gary. But, uh, but you know, being stuck in a freaking rental car, being shafted like that after the, rec the record's smoking, that's great. And then, you know, good feeling. <clears throat> and then Dave made a deal with... Uh, that song, Turn It On, he stuck it in the uh, Summer Olympics. Uh, it was a Coca-Cola promotion. Okay. And I'm looking at looking at the seed, the cassette tape right now. And it was uh, Coca-Cola was going to shrink wrap the cassette tape into every six-pack. Oh, wow. And every six, yeah. Well, what, 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 what Kaplan failed to tell us so, so, so graciously is that we were getting 10 cents a copy. Um, Whoa. But yeah, but we were, you know, we were told something different that, oh, this is a great, you know, honor for you to have this promotional thing. And I, you know, it, we're all down with it. It's great. But I later found out through our record company, oh, there was a deal made for 10 cents a copy. Well, how many six packs did they sell around the world? Well, I was somewhere like, like last count was 93 million. So, oh, okay. So I think that's like 9.3 million. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, but. You know, so it was those kind of things. But yeah, but that record was good. I mean, um, my favorite songs on that record are Your Love Won't Let Me Down, Summers in the Rain, and 4 a.m. TM, mm -hmm. without a doubt. Yeah. You sound like you're experimenting with your voice more on this album. I'm hearing some different uh, vibes and textures, you know, from the Cats and Boots album. Were you, were you trying out to reach out and do some different things? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's the first record that I really ever had a chance to um, 
to learn my voice. And, you know, Cats and Boots was a live band. I mean, from the time that we started playing in L.A., you know, we 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 played a couple shows at the FM station and Whiskey and, or not the Whiskey, but Gazzari's when it was still there, I think. And, um, and then we headed into a studio in Long Beach um, and uh, Trianon Studios with John Vestman. And I think he's still, no, wait a minute. Yeah, no. Oh, that was my Atlantic Records thing with Mary Hoax, where he did an amazing job in that, too. No, you know, actually, Demonstration, the first Cats and Boots Masters, they were made um, at Trianon. We went in, we paid for it ourselves. I think we paid like a thousand bucks. We recorded the record in like a day. And we got on a plane and went to Japan, pressed it on vinyl, and we sold it. We had no man, we had no record company, no manager. We just did it ourselves. We went there to, you know, eat, eat, eat sushi and chase Japanese girls. But we went to have fun, you know. It was, it was I mean, who doesn't want to go to Japan with two Japan guys, <laughs> Japanese, mind you, and, um, and just, just, just rock out and have fun. We, we had no idea the records was going to, was going to fly up to number one on the indie charts there. We we're moving 50,000 vinyl records a, a month or something like that. It was crazy through magazine orders. And we actually got thrown out of Tokyo because we had to play under our song names because they banned us in Tokyo because we'd play these little clubs that held a couple hundred people. And there'd be, there'd be a couple thousand in the street trying to get in. The streets were blocked and, so the authorities said, no, you can't play in Tokyo. We played everywhere, but then we came back to the States. You know, it, Cats and Boots was a live band. You know, it was a fun band. It was not a rehearsal room band. Our rehearsals were done on stage every night. If we had a new song, you know, we'd write it on the bus between places, you know, and, and we'd just go out on stage and play it, you know. Sometimes we'd stop and go, hey, can we change that part and do this? You know, <laughs> like, right, let's try that again. <laughs> so, we, you know, our rehearsals were live. So the Captain Boost record, every bit of energy on that record is just the true spirit of live. And we made that record. We came in and just, we had great, great engineer, uh, Mark Opitz from Australia. He did ACDC, you know, Highway to Hell was his record. And, um, and he did In Excess, Shabu Shaba, and just did a lot of great records. And and then Garth Richardson, G -G 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 Garth was amazing. He's, he is he is amazing. You know, just just go and Google him. I can't say enough about him. But um, I recently did some stuff with him for that the St Stone Temple Pilots thing. I went up and did some vocals on their stuff, that, and just didn't work out. They just didn't have their shit together. But I got to record again with Garth after all these years. And uh, he's way up there on Gibbons Landing in British Columbia. It's like, you, to get to his house, you got to go past pods of killer whales. So, But he's a great guy. He worked with, you know, he's done work on Pink Floyd records, Bob Seger. He actually single-handedly popped out that first Rage Against the Machine record. Mm -hmm. And then at the beginning of Shotgun Sally, where you hear that, ah, that's Garth, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that record was just done quick. We had it done, wrapped up, mastered, and packaged, and ready to go in two months. And I think we did it for like a couple hundred thousand bucks. The Heavy Bones record, it was a grueling eight-month process, and the record cost a half million dollars. And wow. For what? I think half of that was for fancy lunches, and I don't know. But we had fun. You know, We had the girls from Playboy in there. We were playing strip ping pong every day. Yeah, it worked out, but... It just uh, different records, man. But my voice during Heavy Bones was great. Um, Rod Stewart turned me on to his vocal coach. He was a Jewish cantor up in uh, up off on Mulholland, up in the hills, and uh, his name was Nate Lamb. And uh, you know, the guy's a rabbi, and he's up there. You know, he works with Rod Stewart, and I'm just like, oh, you know. He must not be too good because his voice is fucked up. <laughs> and, he laughed. and he goes, actually, Rod's got a nice tenor. He's got a smooth tenor voice. And, you know, it was secret. He comes to me to screw it up. <laughs> you know, and I said, oh. And uh, later, I, was, I got to be really close friends with Bobby Womack. And Bobby said, he goes, yeah, he goes, we were out doing shows with the faces. He goes, and they would always ask me, Bobby, how do you get your voice all nasty like that? And he, and he says, yeah, I just take some bourbon. And I drink bourbon, take a big, couple big swigs and gargle with it, and then I go sing. 
he says, man, Joe, he said, he goes, I, he goes, I'm about to go on. <laughs> and I saw those guys back there gargling with bourbon. I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, Bobby, you told us to. He goes, man, I was just fucking with you. <laughs> just kind of screw your voice up. But anyways, these little stories come to my mind, though. I don't mean to get off. But oh, man. On the You're fine. <laughs> when you think back, well, I know, I mean, it, it's hard to believe that it was 31 years ago, right? But when you even think back to the year 1989, I know a lot of people, you know, especially when I was a kid, everybody loved all the bands that were coming out. I mean, there was Cats and Boots. There was Pretty Boy Floyd, Shotgun Messiah. I mean, there was a ton of bands that, Vane is another one that comes to mind, that put out their debuts in 1989. I mean, what do you think when you look back uh, at 1989? To me, it was like a, it was a magical year for, you know, this kind of music. You know, first I got to say that looking back on it, I feel so blessed to have been a part of that, you know, and to be, to have, you know, actually been a part of it. Um, second of all, I just want to say that every band you mentioned, funny stand up, great, great bands. You're right. There were a lot of bands that came about in the eighties and maybe we saw a lot more of them, you know, at ground level out in Hollywood, but, but you know, they're, you know, the ones you named held their own and they were, they were, they were great bands. Um, you know, and it's like almost every band had like a legion of followers out there that, but um, those guys, it was great. When I, I look back, during that time, and what I mean, you know, when I say great guys, is like, not, not just great bands, not just original, it was a lot of character, but they're just great people. It was a lot of fun doing shows with those guys. And, it, you know, it just, you never knew who you were going to pop up playing with. You know, you'd be out on tour and be like, oh, we're, we're playing in Houston today and uh, Dallas tomorrow. And then you show up and be like somebody on the bill. One day it'd be Battle on AD. The next day it'd be Danger Danger. Mm-hmm. And be like, it was so much fun. Um, and it was like we we're all just brothers. Just traveling around, popped up, and just playing music. And we were untouchable. It was amazing. It was so much fun. And the times were good, you know. Um, and, you know, and there were, it was just... Uh, Looking back, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, it's, it wasn't possible for us to know that we were living the times of our lives right. and that, you know, what we were doing, we didn't think about it, but we were making a huge impact on music. And that's just a good feeling to know that, that we lived through a time where, you know, what you created actually impacted the in, entire, um, you know, the entire genre or, or time, you know, the mm-hmm. entire wave of music that was happening at the time, the entire audience base. Nowadays, there's just billions of artists who get lost, and yep. it's kind of a sad thing, actually. But, you know, I mean, I'm proud to have been, you know, been kicking it in the days of, you know, the real rock stars and the great rock audiences. And I'm really proud to be able to say that I had. <laughs> my records out on vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I feel like you're somebody who would tell it like it is. So, out of all the people that you played with and toured with, okay, so a lot of guys were cool. Who, who, any assholes out there that you want to talk about? <laughs> uh, Gary Holly. <laughs> <laughs> I was picking up on that earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't give a fuck if he's walking your dog. I wouldn't trust him. <laughs> <laughs> How about with Heavy Bones? <laughs> Who'd you guys uh, go out and tour with for that album? I don't remember. I, re- I, you know, we never really got a chance to spread our wings like. Like mm-hmm. I said, we didn't have the right manager. I, you know, the guy was just into getting checks from the record company and taking twenty percent and making corporate deals behind our back and stealing our money. And he would pop into uh, he'd pop into the studio and grace us with his presence once every week or something. You know, like we should all bow down and throw ticker tape parades for him. He'd come in and. Pat us all on the back and leave. And that was it. That's that's about the only management I ever saw from mm-hmm. Um So I don't know. You know, we never really had a chance to really spread our wings live. I mean, in Hawaii, Pearl Jam, you know, in in our we started our uh, Southwest uh, shows, and I remember being at some gig with Peter Chris from Kiss. I don't know. Um, I don't. Really, there's nothing memorable for me. I'm sorry. I mean, we all we just headlined. We, we got a headlining start, and uh, our live shows were good. The Troubadour shows were packed and sold out. Thank you, Los Angeles. And shit, man. It was, you know, but that's like being at home. You know, it's like it's like playing at a keg party at home. You know, it's like getting out on the road. We could have done so much. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, how stupid not to send, you know, my next band over to Japan 
for mm. a show. Yeah, and, that would have probably been uh, big. You know, how brain dead do you have to be not to see that one? <laughs> so what happened when Heavy Bones ended? Did you just kind of get disenchanted with the music industry? Obviously, we're in a a, a, a real fast change of, of trends. You know, we're into the grunge thing. So what happened with you, Joel? Did you just get, you were set with it or what? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. And thanks, because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, you know, why didn't you keep making music? Um, well, I never stopped making music. It's just um, the experience from Heavy Bones was was crazy. I mean, it's like I felt like I felt like a, a slave kept in a basement, mm-hmm. you know, and for 13 years, you know, and it was horrible. And you know what happened? The corporate experience, uh, the fact that you know I was really, really into it. I'd gone to Seattle. I, I heard about Mother Love Bone. I was like, these guys are freaking amazing. I jump wow. on it and guitar seeing those guys live it's amazing it was like no sooner did i get back to la than i heard all their dead you know or or andrew wood's dead and that was a huge blow i mean you know i mean honestly uh you know mother love bones apple and 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 temple of the dog i think are two of the greatest records that came out of that era Mm -hmm. and that's where my head was at that's where my musical heart was um but you'd never know it by listening to heavy bones the record um i don't know um you know, there's a lot of backwards thinking and control of that band. And uh, I, I made a mistake. You know, I mean, I was given a solo deal by Michael Austin. And my lawyer, Peter Lopez, actually told me one day, he said, you know, you don't need this band. You don't need that manager. Michael Michael Austin's got a deal for you. He said, just go over to Warner Brothers and sign it and then hire your band. He goes, you know, you're, you know, you're ready to take off. And I said, you know. I'd been hanging out a lot with Eddie Van Halen and all I kept hearing from Eddie was about Roth and LSD, you know, lead singer disease. <laughs> and Eddie and I got real close. In fact, when I was on Warner Brothers, you know, one one night when we were all fucked up driving on Mulholland and went, went off a, the side of Mulholland Road and, you know, he, he was like, I we were out singing in the car with him. He's like, yeah, I want you in the band. You know, you gotta, I can't. I'm on a contract with Warner Brothers. Wow, we'll fix that. <laughs> then, you know, it's, I kept hearing, you know, we were like, he was like, no, we need a band. You got the right attitude. Let's do it. We're a band. And, you know, I grew up with all the bands, you know, yep. Zeppelin, Beatles, Stones, Drake Isles, Aerosmith. There were bands. Yep. And at the time, you know, when I, Robert Plant told me one day, he said, you know, I asked him, I go, shit, I got this enormous contract that Warner Brothers and, you know, my manager want me to sign. It's like, can you help me read through it? And he's like, well, I, I wouldn't be able to help you with that. <laughs> <laughs> I go, well, why not? I go, you know, why not, fucker? Just look it over. He's like, man, yeah, I love you. But I've never signed a contract in my life. <laughs> oh, like, crap. I go, you're 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 Robert Plant, man, Led Zeppelin. As I know, well, I'm, everything I've done has been on a handshake. Holy shit. <laughs> so I was in awe of that, you know, and, and like I said, I'm a 70s guy, so it's like, okay, how could it be any different? But, so when I was offered that deal, I said, no, you know, I want, I want to bring guys in and make it a band. Mm. You know, I'm going to call my buddy Frankie. He's a monster drummer. And I actually had James Kotek uh, James from Kingdom Come, yep. and he went on to the Scorpions, and, and I, I still feel bad about it, but I, I hope to James, if you're listening, you, you know, and Pete Kamita on bass, and a lot of different guys picked out. I love Rex, by the way. Rex is a cool dude. Rex is completely exempt from, you know, he got he got shafted, okay? There, there was a thing that happened there, but I had these guys in the band, and I didn't really see it coming, but I was playing with Gary, and I thought, you know, I've never worked with a guy, he was a guitar teacher, Mm-hmm. On a GIT or MIT, whatever the hell you call it in Hollywood, you know, they shredders teach kids to be shredders. And, uh, you know, I mean, the guy knew everything about theory, you know, and th- this is where the whole musician versus being an artist comes in. Right. The guy can't write a song, you know, or, or launch, you know, launch a band to save his life. You know, he's always going to have to ride on someone's back because that's it. He's just a musician. And he dazzled me with, with all this stuff, you know, uh, you know, oh, oh, let's play in Lixolydian scale. Oh, Lixolydian, sure. Maybe, you know, it's like, oh. <laughs> wow, this guy is really smart, you know. And, and But, you know, we were partying. You know, Stephen Piercy and I had a, a 
a, apartment up on Fuller Ave. It was like a 24-7 party. We had, I think, every stripper in Hollywood. It was like Hollywood Tropicana girls. We would have to... We'd have to lay down a plastic sheet so they could mud wrestle, you know. And it was like we just had a great time going, you know. And, and we had great, you know, I, I had great people represent me. And then I just figured that Dave was going to be a great manager and Gary was going to be a great guitarist. And I wanted to share my deal with everybody. It's like, let's do this like a brotherhood. But, bam, man, I, I couldn't figure out what those sharp pains in my back were until I realized it. <laughs> it's the stabbing. Stabbing! Yeah, they're haters. You know, people can be haters. You know, when there's money involved and the singer is getting too much attention, oh, we got to level a playing field. But that's okay because you never know what you got till it's gone. And yeah, it did fuck me up in the head. Um, all of that stuff. You know, just having your dream ripped away from you, working so hard to build yourself up. You know, and and you know, being there at the front door of success. You know, I mean, I remember Keith Richards and Woody and Bobby talking to me and just saying, you know, Keith was sat with me for two hours i was with him on his birthday we sat and drank scotch and talked about music and he gave me this fatherly talk in depth just about you know what i what i need to know what i need to expect because you know he's like you know you walked in with bobby womack and if bobby says you're a great singer he goes i don't even need to hear you sing you come and sing on the stones record i'm like if you sing on a stones record and uh so i did i got my vocals in the Booty Lounge record by default. And, um, but, um, you know, I mean, I was ready for that. But, you know, I had to have it to, to, to go in with such a, a sharing vision, you know, having such a, a generous vision, you know, to, to be a band and not to be great, not to stand out with LSD, you know, mm-hmm. but to actually have a band. And I just don't know what the fuck happened, to be honest with you. I mean, I was lucid about the whole thing, but you know, it just really pulled one over on me. Mm-hmm. I thought something was goofy when, you know, I'm like, let's be ourselves. And all of a sudden, they started changing their clothes. They they thought they would look like grunge guys. If you ever look at the <laughs> look at some of the interviews we did on video interviews and <laughs> and some of the promo shots, you see like Gary and Gary like putting on these grunge army boots and they're wearing knit hats and flannel shirts, and it's like. You, you guys are pretending you're like 80s rockers trying to go to Nashville <laughs> to be country artists. I and mean, just you just be yourself. And you know, I don't know. It just wasn't a lot of. I don't know. You know, just I don't know. I couldn't tell you what happened, but it wasn't cool. But I'm glad you liked the record. Yeah, man, I, I'm loving it. Like I said, it's a new discovery for me. Uh, with your voice, I mean, I've always thought your voice was amazing. Obviously, lots of other people do too. Um, where does your voice come from? Who are your early influences uh, in music that got you that voice? Uh, my voice comes from my throat. <laughs> well, I know that. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> All right, you had me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I all I can say is that I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in the 70s, through the peak of the greatest years, the greatest point on the planet to possibly be you know, if you if you if you like rock and roll, Cleveland. I can't describe it, but anybody listening to this that is from Cleveland or knows about Cleveland in the '70s, you know, that's where my voice came from, and that's probably the biggest compliment that I could give myself mm-hmm. is that you know, where'd your voice come from? It came from the streets. It came from the bars. It came from screaming my fucking lungs out at the concerts. Uh, you know, I mean, I grew up with a group of guys that were. I don't know. It's just it was like uh, the Outsiders meets <laughs> I don't know Spinal Tap or something. I don't know. It was crazy. <laughs> That's interesting. We we like risked our lives. We were like a pack of wolves, and we'd go to every concert and we'd sneak in, and and you know it was just the energy that you know of music at the time. It just it's just something welled up inside of me, and it got to be kind of a crazy place to live. You know, a lot of my friends were dying. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, a lot of my friends drinking overdose before they were old enough to drink and uh, you know it uh, music saved me you know I mean uh, and I poured my heart into it and at first I remember I bought my first guitar for seven dollars after school one day I was uh, walking home with my best friend Jimmy Rusher and uh, Jimmy blew his head off or he might have gotten it blown off for him I don't know but um, but 
when we were kids, we grew up together, and he had this Sears guitar, and he just wasn't into it. So he gave it to me. I said, oh, damn, he goes, you want this? I go, yeah, give me some money. I go, how much you got? I don't know. I got five bucks. He's like, that ain't enough. And I'm like, oh, and I found two more bucks in my back pocket. I'm here. That's all I thought. It was okay here. So I, you know, I rigged it up in the basement, and I just was like, I, I wired. I'm surprised my mom and dad's house didn't burn down because I, I just took, people would throw stereos out in the garbage, and my friends and I would grab them and take them downstairs and wire the amplifiers up in series. And, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a dangerous thing. And the music sound coming out of that guitar was dangerous. And so I really, I dug it, but... At the time, everything was like, you know, you had to know how to play guitar. And I made some really cool sounds, like Robin Trower and Hendrix were my big influences on guitar. But I joined a band, and not only were there two other Joes in the band, um, but they were both guitar players, and so I was the worst guitar player. So if I wanted to stay in the band, I had to do something. So I'm going to sing. So, you know, I, I forged my voice playing, you know, nasty, smoky clubs, you know, I was like 16. I was playing with older guys like that were old enough to drink, you know, and they had hair on their chest. I was like, yeah, you know, so they used to sneak me in the back door when it was stage time and I'd run up on the stage and sing my ass off all night in front of a bunch of freaking Hell's Angels and uh, one night and then the next night we'd be playing a high school dance somewhere with a different band and then, you know, where we'd be playing a keg party which half the time I don't remember anything after the second set, you know, but, um, but yeah, it was just, Cleveland was amazing. And then, you know, just screaming a lot. That's where I got my scream from was, you know, just, you got us, oh man, this concert's great, you know? And, you know, so, but, you know, playing in bands and just making it work, you gotta, you gotta hit a note. And if you don't know how to hit it, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna hit it somehow. And eventually, you know, you build your character. So I always tell people, it's like, how do I get, you know, how do I get to be a great singer like you? I'm like, well, first you, you beat the shit out of your voice, and that's going to give you character. And uh, and then you can learn how to sing. Don't learn how to sing first, you know. Don't start with vocal lessons. You know, live it. Walk it like you talk it. Get out there. Abuse the fuck out of your voice. Get out there and have fun with it, you know. And, and sing, sing until it scares you or scares somebody or scares <laughs> the dogs away or, you know, or it gives, gives your friends goosebumps on their arms. And then you, can, then you can figure out how to breathe and all that stuff. And then, and then you'll be able to be like, oh, it's an epiphany. I get it. Like, oh, I see. If I use my breath like this. And so that's what happened to me before Heavy Bones. You know, Cats and Boots was just all bish bash singing and making it happen and just wailing is from passion comes mm -hmm. passion is very passionate you know that's a passionate voice and uh heavy bones was a refined voice i was getting the operatic training yeah from ron anderson yeah and then i turned uh i turned uh who was it i turned on to oh i turned uh uh james hetfield onto the uh, rabbi nate lamb uh -huh. and if you listen to the records before one the black record mm -hmm. Uh, is different voice, and mm. then uh, you know he started going to Nate, and that's when he came up with that that beautiful voice that you know they call it the unforgiven. <laughs> he used to call me Joe Jovi. I hated it, and I call him. I, I told him I said, "Well, you look more like," and he goes, "Cary Grant," and I said, "No, more like Curly Grant." You know, <laughs> so those were our names. He called me Joe Bon Jovi, and I call him Curly Grant. But but his, his, you know Nate Lamb worked his voice and he worked his voice and, and, and kudos to James because you know amazing amazing voice and he kept up with it and they're huge oh yeah and um, they deserve to be huge it's just they're just great um, you know they've come a long way from living on crackers and ketchup packs at Burger King you know, we all did. <laughs> but um, yeah but I worked with Ron Anderson and Ron was an amazing coach. He was actually the vocal coach for the New York Metropolitan Opera. You know, you'd go in and he'd sit down behind his piano and he'd start you off on scales and he'd be like, no, you should loosen your lips and go. And I said, well, I never used my lips for anything like that before. <laughs> can, we, can I bring a girl in the room? Maybe I'll sing better. No, but um, a girlfriend, uh, whatever. Um, but 
he helped me to find my voice. He helped me to find my breath control. He helped me to find all my registers. He helped me to connect that psychological thing you do and your, your vowel modifications. And, I, you know, I started to realize just how amazing the human voice is and how connected it is with everything from your balls to your sinuses, you know, to the top of your head. Right. And, you know, I mean, being a great singer is really about, is really about utilizing, um, you know, like Ron would say, your ontology. It's like utilizing your ontology. You know, it's everything about you. Um, and so it's like, it's like uh, when you're singing, you're pulling everything from, you know, where you're from, who you are, what you're doing, where you're at in life, to, the, to, to standing in that moment and, and visualizing. And once you get all those techniques down, it's really amazing because you can, you can really use your power of the mind to be able to, to connect your, 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 uh, your diaphragm, you know, your, your, your torso section, you know, you gotta, you gotta really be able to, you know, pack your breath down into your, your freaking down into your balls. And then you gotta be able to keep your torso, but you gotta keep it relaxed from here on up and your neck is going to be down. And you, you know, you gotta keep your like jaw in the back of your tongue smooth, but then you gotta be able to visualize and get that air moving up into your, you know, it's not really the air, it's like the vibrations coming from your vocal cords and you know, it seems like your breath, but it's really the vibrations you're sending up through your different cavities of your skull, your sinuses. And then, you know, you use your mouth to kind of adjust, like every, every great singer should do like a, an O or an O. And as much like, like, like Klaus in the Scorpions, when he sings, uh, what's his song where he said, love? He sings, love, only oh, love. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, like, he's singing, still love, loving you. Uh, 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 uh. There's an uh in there. It's not uh. If you try to sing a uh, it's love. <laughs> love. Only love. Don't bring down the walls of pain. I will remain. And when you say remain, I will remain. It's almost like an E. I will remain. You know, so there's all kind of modifications that you can do that are just mind-blowing. And that's what was happening on Heavy Bones. My, my favorite songs to sing are Summers in the Rain and Your Love Won't Let Me Down. Mm-hmm. And Your Love Won't Let Me Down, you know, I, I mean, I think where that song goes is I think, to me, where every rock singer, you know, gets a hard on to go. You know, you know it's, it's, it, those are the places. And Summers in the Rain is where you can just chill back and just relax and tell a story. Right. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, hey, I'm looking forward to all these releases, and I can't wait. I really hope you guys can get the cats and boots thing uh, off the ground once you know COVID passes, because that that sounds exciting. I appreciate that. You know, I'm actually looking for new band members. I live in Portland, and I thought maybe I could find band members up here. And I love Oregon, but there's no musicians here. I mean, no? there's, there's nothing up to now. Nothing. <laughs> uh, I tried for five years to find something here, but there's nothing, and uh, so. Um, and Stephen Pierce is doing guitar auditions, and, and he says he's going to look for guys for me. But I'm, I'm looking if uh, if anybody out there is a guitarist, and and be honest with yourself, and be honest with me. If you think that that you could that you could really actually come in and, and fill those shoes from from you know from Ohashi and and, and those kind of things. Um, if you're a great guitarist, you're dynamic and you're raw and you're real. Then email me at Joel Ellis Music at Yahoo. Okay, Joel Ellis Music at Yahoo. It's real simple. And uh, just send me your stuff because I'm looking to put a band together and I want to make a new record. Okay, you know, cool. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's let's leave Cats and Boots and Heavy Bones in the past and and um, and I want to make a new record as if I never stopped because I'm ready again. I'm ready. Nice. That's awesome, Joel. Well, hey, man. I'm calling, I'm calling Randy out on this one, too. Randy, bring your Houston ass up here, big dog. <laughs> Dude, I can play bass, but, you know, I'm in New York, so I don't know if that's going to help. Mama plays fiddle, too. <laughs> well, hey, brother, I appreciate the time tonight. You had me laughing. It was a great conversation. What do you want to say to everybody in closing? I 
just want to say I love you and thank you and uh, thanks for keeping my music alive on YouTube and and uh, I love it when you guys write me on Facebook and I just want to let you guys know that I'm going to come back. I'm going to try my best not to disappoint you. And, you know, there may not be a whole lot of new rock and roll coming out, but I think that's about to change. And I think there's a lot of people that are going to be inspired in the right way because we need rock and roll. Yep. Just hold that torch, people. Hold that torch. We need rock and roll because it's a part of all of us. Awesome. Joel, thanks a lot, brother. You stay healthy out there. Yeah, right on. You too. And to everybody out there, take care of yourselves and love one another. And don't get wrapped up in the news. It's all bullshit. Cut yourself off. Live your life. Look around. Be happy because it's all going to pass. You know, this too shall pass. Yep. We've made it through crazy bullshit before, and as a, as, as a human society, we're going to make it through again. But you've got to be positive. You've got to believe in yourself, and you've got to believe in love, and you've got to share it, and that's it. Okay? Yeah. Remember what the Beatles said. I'm going to leave you with this one, Mike, and then I'll shut up and go away. <laughs> <laughs> Think about this. The Beatles were around for eight years, and they changed the world. Okay? The very last recording that they did together, the very last vocal, the words were, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs> All right, brother. Take care. All right. Thanks, Mike. Talk soon. Bye, Joel. Well, hey, man, you made it through the whole thing, huh? I'm sure you were very entertained. Well, let me tell you what's coming up for the 80s Glam Metalcast. Next episode will be with the guys from Spread Eagle, so check that out. After that one, we got Chris Caffery from Sabotage and TSO. Gotta say the same spiel that I say every time, man. Become a subscriber. Currently, as of recording this, I'm at 807 subscribers. I need to get 1,000. I need to start getting some money. Help a brother out. Hit subscribe. Rock on!